Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting December 18th, 2015, we talk with WPJ editor emeritus David Andelman in Paris about what did and did not happen at the big World Climate Conference there last week. His final report on the proceedings for the World Policy blog is headlined, Back to the Future of Our Planet. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. Je n'entends pas d'objection. L'accord de Paris pour le climat est accepté. So ended the UN's Paris Climate Conference of 2015 last weekend. French Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius gaveled acceptance of an agreement that was historic in its goals for limits on global warming, but also disturbingly vague on exactly what nearly 200 signatory nations, as well as armies of local officials, big business leaders, and non-government activists, would do to reach those goals, and what penalties would come for falling short. World Policy Journal editor emeritus David Andelman has been in Paris since before the climate conference began, interviewing participants and expert observers, analyzing the progress made and the problems that remain. His final post on the World Policy blog is headlined, Back to the Future of Our Planet, and we spoke about it earlier in the week for this special post-conference podcast. David Andelman, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thanks for having me. First, tell us about the mood of the convention in Paris, focused on future climate disaster, of course, but hardly able to forget, I would think, the recent terrorist tragedy there. Uh, were participants still edgy, uh, just determined, uh, still eager to seek out the pleasures of Paris? Well, first of all, you have to understand that it actually the conference itself didn't take place in Paris. It took place at Le Bourget uh, Airport, what was once Le Bourget Field. Uh, it still was a private airport outside of Paris. In fact, it's the it's the very uh, airfield that um, that uh, Charles Lindbergh landed the uh, Spirit of St. Louis in uh, the first transatlantic uh, crossing of the uh, from from uh, Europe from America to Europe uh, a century ago. So it's uh, quite an historic location, but it is uh, outside of, of Paris itself. You have to get there uh, either by uh, highway if you're fortunate enough to have a police escort, which um, hundreds and hundreds of um, heads of state and government and other dignitaries had, or by the RER um, sort of commuter train and the shuttle bus, which uh, the rest of us um, uh, braved every every day, and that took about an hour from the city. But uh, certainly there were pleasures of Paris, and, and people did enjoy them. Uh, it was always an overhang. The uh, all of the uh, uh, all of the events of the previous uh, month here, the uh, the horrible um, uh, ISIS um, inspired uh, massacre in Paris um, about three weeks before this began. Um, but, you know, when, when people buckled down to it, there were 40,000 people there from close to 200 countries. Uh, they're really, their focus was on the climate rather than on, uh, that is, the, the physical climate of our planet rather than on the political, social, or military climate of Paris itself. That, that is not to say, of course, that there was not extraordinary security. There was. Much of it, though, manned by the um, United Nations' uh, own security forces since this was officially a U.N. rather than a French venue for the actual talks themselves. Be more specific about the goals agreed on in terms of world temperature increase and the greenhouse gas emissions that help drive it. 
Well, the, the goals were not that specific. That's what's the irony of it. I mean, there were some, um, there were some, I should say, the, there were goals and they were specific. But in terms of the actual mechanisms of getting there, that was where a lot of the vagueness came in. And that's where a lot of the concerns about this pact uh, remain, even in the aftermath of it, uh, although there was certainly a lot enough euphoria surrounding the final uh, agreement itself. But the, um, the, the specific goals uh, have to do with the temperature levels, um, the rise in temperature levels of the planet uh, that the conferees are hoping to control over the next century, by the end of this century. And, and they're fairly aggressive. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Some people at the beginning thought that they never would get that into a final document that 195 countries could all agree on unanimously, which they did. So that's what's kind of interesting. Well, what are the numbers? Well, the numbers are two percent, uh, two degrees. I'm sorry, two degrees centigrade um, uh, rise in temperature. That is the the actual. That is the actual high, highest temperature that they want the goals to be reached. Their their ideal is 1.5 degrees centigrade, which is really means that the, the end of virtually all kinds of of um, you know carbon emitting. Uh, products uh, over the next century, and and that's um that's a pretty aggressive goal, and that's over that is over the the, the base temperature of um you know over the last since the industrial revolution, so this is a pretty aggressive number. Two degrees centigrade is is good. One point five degrees is ideal. Um, in fact, a lot of people suggest that really more like two point seven to three point five is more realistic given the kinds of plans that com- countries have been putting forward. Now, those kinds of numbers would be really catastrophic for the planet, and that's what—that's really they were hoping to get past that and to these other goals of 2 degrees centigrade or ideally 1.5 degrees centigrade. So at the very start, scientists say this agreement fails to fully solve the problem. What will that mean for the most vulnerable areas, and which are they? Well, the most vulnerable areas right now, the most immediately vulnerable areas, are the low-lying areas, the ones that are right at sea level, because... What we're really talking about is the immediate impact is the rise in sea levels as some of the main glaciers begin to melt. So more water goes into the seas, the sea levels begin to rise. So there are some of the South Pacific islands, like Kiribati, for instance, are all but um, at that very point. In fact, um, the Kiribati delegate um, started off his speech by thanking the delegate from Fiji for agreeing to take the entire population his country into their country because it's about to go underwater entirely. So there are islands like that that are facing absolute extinction within the next several years unless this process can be reversed. Uh, Beyond that, there are virtually every other low-lying area um, in in the world is, is in theory, uh, subject to this. And it could be Key West, Florida. It could be uh, Santa Barbara. It could be, um, you know, it could even be, uh, you know, the Hamptons or even Manhattan. Uh, could see rises in sea levels sufficient to uh, really begin to find some impact in in, in those areas. We joke about having uh, beachfront property here uh, upon our little hill, but uh, that's uh, that's really only a joke. With that grim science-based forecast, why are so many so self-congratulatory? Do they see science itself coming up with new technologies, new efficiencies, or is it all sacrifice? Well, the, the, first, the first real self-congratulations is the fact that this is the first time in the history of the world that 195 countries have come together in one place. That's the first self-congratulation, that they all came. 
The second is that they all actually agreed on something that is a very, in effect, a very, for some of these countries, a very controversial document, um, and, and actually agreed to move forward with a project that could really change the future of, of humanity. So those are the real self-congratulations. And that, therefore, there was a, a, a sense of, um, if you will, a, a, a kind of a, a hope and a spirit that they hope will actually in, inflame the rest of the, even if governments don't necessarily embrace it, will inflame the rest of humanity to understand the need for taking these kinds of, of steps going forward. So that's really what the, the, the euphoria was about, that they're not necessarily about the actual results of the of the agreement, because those are fairly modest, at least for the moment. Uh, and, and a lot has to do with how it's actually going to be implemented going forward by each of these individual countries. So you have to, you have to take, sort of squeeze all of that out and say, look, this is very much an atmospherics kind of moment. And, and that's what's really critical to understand. You write about contributions to compromise by the conferences, French hosts, and the UN Secretary General. Say more about their roles. Well, the, the French um, were in charge of this. Uh, that is to say, Laurent uh, Fabius, the French foreign minister, was the, the president of COP21. In each case, uh, wherever there has been a COP, there have been 21 uh, conferences like this called COPs, um, Conference of Parties, they're called. Um, there, the, the, the host country has been the chair uh, or the presiding officer of these. So, um, so, so Fabius and the French government really put their prestige on the line very much to come up with an agreement that would work. And uh, Francois Hollande, who was there at the at the conclusion, the president of France, Ban Ki Moon, who was there throughout, uh, these were people who really put their their prestige and their their future on the line. They really believe that this is one of the great. Uh, as does President Obama, by the way, one of the single great advances of their administration. So they were very anxious to do this. They were the kinds of people who were willing to knock heads together when some countries expressed reservations, uh, to look for the, the very subtle changes in language, the word here that's phrased there, that could make um, a whole host of countries suddenly be in a position to sign on. So their, their, um, all of their input was very, very important. And you say both the presence and the promise of private enterprise in Paris, or at Le Bourget, I should say, suggest that a, a signal of seriousness and self-interest has been sent and received, that saving the planet can involve profit as well as sacrifice in a low-carbon economy. Talk about that. Well, yes, absolutely. And there, there are certainly a number of com uh, companies, and, and a lot of them were there. Some, some um, companies actually had um, some rather large um, Emplacements there. Facebook had a very large um, uh, presence here. They had a, a, almost a pavilion of their own. But uh, a lot of the energy companies also were here in, in a big way because they understand that that's that their future is tied very closely to the kinds of changes that are that are uh, apparent here. And, and and a lot of these companies, uh, for instance, companies that have produced oil are also producing natural gas, which is considered somewhat slightly less polluting in a slightly less in terms of generating greenhouse gases. So they're hoping they can move in that direction. Uh, equally, solar and wind power companies are very anxious to see um, um, renewable energy uh, become a really the mantra of the future. So all of these companies see a very a substantial potential profit in that. In addition to that, there are a number of other companies that really see their you know, they're being linked up with the idea, with this progressive idea of the future of, their, of the planet in a green sense is important to their image. 
uh, in, in the future going forward, as this kind of a concept really begins to take hold in countries all over the world. So they were very anxious to see, to show that they had input. And, and really, in terms of dollars and cents, a lot of the investment for the future, some of it will have to come from the wealthy developed countries, uh, like the United States, for instance, uh, or Western Europe. But a lot will also have to come from, and, and will be factored into the whole formula, from companies that see their way forward uh, to, to actually donate either in kind or in dollars to the, uh, the ultimate goal of what are supposed to be $100 billion worth of annual inputs into from the uh, transfers from the developed world to the developing world to help them move towards their goals. Well, we understand that participating nations could file and did file their own plans uh, for helping to reach uh, those goals. What did the United States propose for its part? Yes, well, each of these plans were called the Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, or INDCs. It's just part of the jargon that was uh, floating around all week, uh, last two <laughs> weeks in, in uh, Le Bourget. Um, but the American INDC uh, has a target of reducing America's greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28% below 2005 levels by the year 2025. And, and remember, the agreement doesn't really come into effect uh, officially and fully until 2020. So it's the next five-year period after that that a lot of these national contribution plans are really pegged to. So the American plan is pegged to that level, 26 to 28% below 2005 levels. This effectively doubles the pace of carbon pollution reduction from 1.2% a year during the 2005 to 2020 period to 23 to 2.8% per year uh, between 2020 and 2025. And going beyond that, um, after that to 2025, each uh, country that's a signatory to this pact uh, will have to come up with a new plan, hopefully a more aggressive plan going forward, so that eventually we can get to that by the end of the century at 1.5% um, uh, 1.5 degrees centigrade um, rise in temperature. And how does the U.S. plan compare with some of the other plans uh, and benchmarks that have been proposed? Is it, uh, is it among the most uh, aggressive, or where does it fall? I would say it falls somewhere in the middle. For instance, uh, Switzerland uh, pledged a 50% uh, emissions reduction by 2030, and uh, Norway uh, a 40% reduction by 2030 compared to the 1990 level. Mexico a 22% reduction by 2030. The EU, a 40% reduction by 2030, 80% by 2050. And as I said, the U.S. is 26 to 28% below uh, by uh, 2025. So we're somewhat, I would say, somewhat in the middle of the road there. But uh, again, it's better to be a little bit conservative, I suspect, than aggressive because you would rather overfulfill the plan rather than underfulfill it. What provisions are in the agreement for monitoring and assessing how well the signatories are meeting their goals, and, and what's the penalty or price for falling short? Well, in my view, that's one of the big, that's one of the big shortcomings of this, this agreement, and, and one of the reasons is that it's not a treaty, so it can't be uh, – they say, you know, portions are legally binding, but the legally binding part is, is, is kind of a misnomer because basically what it means is that um, if a country like the U.S. has, has certain – uh, EPA regulations, for instance, that are not laws but are simply executive orders, uh, that covers that. So that's fine. So, um, uh, but in terms of monitoring, uh, the United Nations is going to have a um, is going to be setting up a mechanism so under this treaty that um, we'll, we'll be able to monitor this, and countries will have to themselves, in fact, self-monitor as well 
Uh, there are also some, um, a lot of provisions against double counting, so that if one country says that they've lowered at this amount, um, you know, the next country over can't say, oh, well, we did as well, and basically count that country's uh, emission uh, reductions as part of their own. So there are a lot of um, provisions like that that are built in that will be very useful, but the biggest problem is what is the penalty? There really isn't a penalty for falling short. What there will be is hopefully an incentive if countries look like they're falling short to, you know, to, to throw in some more money, to throw in some more resources, some more ideas to bring them up to snuff. But again, uh, you know, no country, I mean, in theory, there's, there's the, the, the moral suasion or the, the image of a country, but that doesn't always necessarily count for very much. I want to go back to the financing. Uh, the uh, changes in ener- energy production, manufacturing, transportation is going to be very costly and, and a big difference, a big gap between the have and have not nations. How big is that chasm and how will it be approached? Well, the developing countries uh, say it's very big. And uh, what they're saying is it's $100 billion a year big. And, and this was one of the, um, the principal stumbling blocks uh, for a long time is is how much of a mandate will there be for, uh, and, and how much resources will actually be available? Will the developed world, either public or private funding, be able to reach a level of $100 million to get the developed world, developing world, um, up to uh, up to the standards that are necessary to reach these um, targets for greenhouse gas emissions and temperature rises? So um, the $100 billion is a question, Mark, that, that is really a, a big unknown. Uh, when, when John Kerry, the uh, principal American negotiator, came here, uh, he said, uh, look, we're going to double our, our investment over the next um, uh, year from uh, $400 million to um, $800 million. And, and that's, that's a certainly a very generous and magnanimous figure. But the question is, first of all, is that number going to continue uh, you know, for the next 20 years, uh, $800 million? And second of all, um, that's basically less than 1% of the um, – of, of everything that's needed uh, in, in the world in order to get there. We have to get to $100 billion. Uh, $800 million is part of the way there, but not very far. So uh, I think there is, a lot of, uh, there is a lot of question about how the financing on this is going to work, and I frankly think that the success of this is going to rise or fall on just how much resources and how much innovation is available to the uh, developing countries. And when I say developing, I mean this could mean some very large countries like India, or uh, Bangladesh, or some of the large African countries uh, that are in, in, um, are in are in terrible shape financially in terms of uh, being able to enforce this kind of a, um, a, a promise compliance to these kinds of um, these kinds of numbers that have been thrown around at Le Bourget in the last couple of weeks. To the degree that U.S. funds are key to moving the agreement from paper to practical progress, what are the expectations that uh, that contribution will run up against the ongoing presidential campaign and Republican opposition to most anything Obama? Well, over the next uh, year and a half, it's, it's probably not going to, or the next year, it's probably not going to be that much of a um, change. Uh, you know, most of the, the numbers right now are relatively small. Uh, they're certainly within the leeway of the federal budget. Uh, Obama can move some money around and so on is to get up to the $800 million that um, that Kerry promised. Um, that, that's, that's not a real problem. The biggest problem is going to come if there is an administration going forward or if there is a Congress able to block any substantial movement on this going forward. How is that going to work? Because there are just so many uh, climate change deniers, if you will, 
uh, particularly on the Republican ranks and particularly in the Senate, uh, that this could be an issue. And, and what I think Obama, the Obama administration is hoping for, and, and some of the people from the American negotiating team that I've talked to have said that, look, what they hope is that the, the process will have gone so far down the road by the time a new administration comes in, if it's not a Democratic administration and a, a pro-green administration, uh, that it will be very difficult to roll this back and that there will be such a, um, such a groundswell of support for improving the environment or fear that, in fact, that things are getting so bad, uh, droughts in the, in the southwest, uh, you know, huge, um, uh, you know, storms in all sorts of all parts of the world that, in fact, it's going to become obvious that something has to be done to control all of this or, or if not reverse it, at least to halt or slow the process. You spoke with a number of officials and activists before the gavel fell. One had a special interest in water as it's impacted by climate change. Spell that out. Right. This was the uh, president of the World Water Council, and, and he said, look, he said there are two problems with water in the world. One is too much of it, and one is too little of it. And the too much of it we've already talked about in terms of countries that are, are literally drowning in the oceans. And, and too little of it is, is uh, vast areas of drought and so on, and particularly in, even in parts of China where uh, the glaciers are melting and the waters are drying up. Um, uh, in large parts of the American Southwest, in, in vast stretches of Africa, and in, even in Latin America. So um, there, there is no question that water is a, both the shortage and the, uh, the, um, the, the shortage and the surfeit of water are both serious, serious problems. And, and what he said was, is that, um, look, water management is what is more important than anything else right now, more critical. And investments in water management, whether it's stockpiling uh, water, excess water, for periods when there is not so much water in order to smooth out the, the peaks and the troughs, if you will, uh, or, or other reasons for other, other means of making sure that the water shortages or surface as a result of climate change are, are smoothed out and that people don't suffer from it. That's what his main concern is, that people too often can suffer from both extremes of water. He talked about new technologies or, or developing technologies, uh, desalinization, uh, reuse of, uh, of what we normally consider wastewater that's actually um, serving uh, communities well in some places. Oh, oh, there's no doubt it is, and, and um, particularly in places like Saudi Arabia, for instance, where desalination is, is becoming a very big thing now. But remember, a lot of this actually itself consumes energy. Desalinization uh, consumes an enormous amount of energy, um, and, and a lot of these uh, reprocessing of waters, that consumes a lot of energy. So, again, we have to balance a lot of this out. Now, in places like Saudi Arabia, where there's considerable solar energy, some of that can be used for that purpose. But, uh, again, it's all a matter of resources, and Saudi Arabia is going to find that particularly if oil prices continue to fall, if uh, oil is going to continue to be less and less desirable as a fuel, um, and less and less desirable as a commodity, that's going to seriously affect their, the economy of the oil-producing countries. A lot of these oil-producing countries do rely heavily on you know, reprocessing of water to meet their, their extreme needs. So, uh, again, this is all, it's all very often a trade-off, and these kinds of trade-offs are what are so critical to the success or will be critical to the success uh, or failure of this agreement. Another expert you spoke with was the deputy mayor of a city in Belgium who stressed the role that local government and non-government action can play um, in changing lifestyles, energy use, carbon emissions. Give us some examples that, uh, that he cited. 
Well, he had some interesting uh, examples and interesting ideas. They have taken out large parts of their city from the, um, the ability to even drive cars there. So we said we're, we're discouraging people from taking their cars into the center of the cities. And all of that is very important. Um, and he said, if we can discourage the use of cars. We can discourage the use of, of uh, we can reduce the levels of, um, of greenhouse gases within our, uh, within our, within our regions. And, and, and all of this is very important. He also said that they're building mass transit uh, in his city that much more potently. And, and, and also, um, they're looking at ways of, of uh, developing solar panels, solar energy for use in their buildings and, and in their, uh, throughout their, their municipal administration. So he said, you know, we are very conscious of this. In addition to this, he said, uh, we have uh, urban planning systems that are in place now that we believe can be, um, Backed it into the, the plans of other other cities all over the world. They have, for instance, a, a twin city in Morocco that's looking at using a lot of the same concepts that they developed in their city in, in Belgium, in Morocco. And Morocco, by the way, it will be the site of the next COP, COP22, next year, which will be the first chance now to review the progress from this past COP21. We started with the mood of the conference. Let's end with your mood and attitude towards all that you've covered. Will it go down as a sea change, pardon the pun, or, or more rhetoric than real commitment to saving the planet? You know, it just all has to do with how much people are willing to commit. And not only when I say people, I mean politicians, but I also mean citizens all over the world. How much are they willing to recognize that this is really a vital essence for the future, that we cannot live on this planet if this doesn't work in some fashion. Now, a lot of people have pointed out that we may not actually see this in our lifetime or even in our children's lifetime. It may not be until, you know, in, until the year 2200, 2300, before we really begin to see the results of this disagreement that was set today. But if we can set ourselves on this right path, it'll work. I'm still a little skeptical, I have to tell you. I've seen so many of these agreements like this that have been agreed upon by, by you know, multiple nations and then have just fallen apart in the end because so many people begin to renege on their commitments. But if people can really be held to the fire, your feet to the fire of countries, 195 countries, even if 100 of these countries, if 90 of these countries, important countries, can in fact embrace this treaty and really make it work, we could start to see some results. David Adelman, thank you. It was so good to be with you. World Policy Journal Editor Emeritus David Andelman's final post from the big climate conference in Paris is Back to the Future of Our Planet on the World Policy blog. A former CBS and New York Times correspondent, now on the USA Today Board of Contributors, he's also author of A Shattered Peace, Versailles 1919, and The Price We Pay Today. Featured in the new WPJ Winter Issue, you'll find articles on Latin America's evolving economics and culture, the changing face of Cuba, black sites on the Internet, and deadly interactions on the Syria-Turkey border. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the new face of gunboat diplomacy, U.S. Navy ships challenging Beijing's controversial expansion of territorial waters in the South China Sea. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.